0: Hello, this is Michael L. Harris, and this is Entertainment Review, a place where I talk in an open and honest, unplugged fashion about the entertainment I've seen in the Midwest and with a concentration on Northern Indiana. In this episode, which I've entitled Into the Oakwoods Art Barn, I review my opening night attendance at Into the Woods at the Round Barn Theater at the Barnes of Napanee, and I share a little bit about the Oakwood Resorts Art Festival sponsored by the Syracuse-Wawassee Chautauqua. I did not attend the annual art festival at Napanee this year, however. In years past, I have attended, primarily because my season ticket at the Round Barn Theater also included a pass to the Arts and Crafts Festival. But honestly, even though the festival was build this year to be bigger and better than ever, I've just not been compelled by my past year's attendance enough to fork over the extra bucks to go. Now I'm not saying that there aren't some interesting things there. There are. Last year uh, there was a great furniture manufacturer, an Amish gentleman, and he had some really cool stuff. But the price range was so far out of mind that I ended up with a jar of jam and some scented rock salt instead. This year I attended instead the art festival at the Oakwood Resort in Syracuse, Indiana. There was no charge to get in, and although it wasn't very big, I felt like there was a great mix of arts and crafts there. And while the Barnes Arts and Crafts, Festival may have been good this year. I didn't attend, so I don't really know. I might have been surprised. If I had one suggestion for the Syracuse Festival, however, it would be to include more local artists in the mix. I mean, there were people from the area, but what I'm talking about is art that specifically applies to the Syracuse-Wawasee area. I think people in the area, particularly people that come in summer in the area, would be more interested in some of the paintings and crafts by people that are indigenous to Lake Wawasee, but that maybe there aren't that many local artists left. For upcoming virtual entertainment, check out the lineup on stageit.com. They have some really great musicians playing virtual concerts over the next few weeks. And check episode four of this podcast for some great additional opportunities. And now for my review of Into the Woods. First of all, my disclaimer. As I mentioned in episode two, when reviewing the Round Barn's first production, Land That I Love, Into the Woods is not really my favorite show. But that's just my reaction to the script and bears little on the quality of the Round Barn's production thereof. Ooh, fancy word there, Mike. Thereof. Anyway, and besides, I bet Steven Sondheim isn't losing any sleep over whether I'm endorsing his production or not. So, How was the Round Barn's production? Well, I'm glad you asked. Okay, well, it was good. But unfortunately, it was not great. And the really unfortunate thing is that it had the potential of being great. And actually, the things that kept it from going from good to great were relatively minor individually. But they're also what separates the high school drama queens from becoming the Meryl Streep's. Subtle actions and just that much extra defines the greats of the industry. Now, you may say, Michael cut them a little slack. They're a small company in a small town. But no, I've promised you in every episode of this podcast to speak in an open and honest manner about what I've observed at the events that I've attended. It does neither me nor the venues, nor the actors any good to simply clap them on the back vigorously and say, good job, when they really need some input as to what really is going on. Most people, when asked, will say, oh, hey, great job, even when they walk out of the theater. You see, I'm genuinely interested in the success of the Round Barn Theater. I spoke briefly with Marlin and Christy Stutzman, the new owners and executive producer, and I really think they're trying to make the Round Barn great again. Well, I guess that implies the assumption that it once you, you catch the drift. Anyway, the studsman seems to have assembled a competent team, but I just have to wonder if the team really feels comfortable telling their bosses that the production is not ready to open, or needs more development, as in the case of Land That I Love. Now, I know summer stock is hard, and this cast was notably exhausted, but that's the nature of summer stock, or in this case, I guess, resident company. It's an endless process of long days preparing for the next show, and these shows have particularly long runs. Touring companies have long runs, but they aren't preparing a new show to open weeks after the first one starts. Professional actors, and I would have to classify The Round Barn as a setting where I would expect professional actors, and not just a serendipitous happenstance, have to be prepared to go on like it's the first time, the most exciting performance they've ever done, every time. Thankfully, there is a relatively long lapse before their next and final show of the season, A Christmas Carol. And since I doubt that they're rehearsing that show now, hopefully they'll have time to get good and rested and rehearsed up before they close the season, and hopefully, therefore, they will close the season on a really high note. Because what they really need right now is just to get people into this theater and be brilliant enough that people will want to come back. I also think that a few more perks and a slightly lower price point in their season ticket package would do a lot to bring in an audience if coupled with the right shows and the level of performance an avid theatergoer expects. But they're trying to do right now seems to be counterproductive to those ends, running Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday shows for nearly two months at two shows a day on a Saturday. I'm just not sure this cast has the strength to pull it off. To me, fewer performances with bigger houses and fresher actors seems like the smarter move. I attended the opening night performance, and to me, many of the cast members seemed exhausted already. That aside, delightfully, most of the cast seemed to have developed well-defined characters, and staging for this show was much more engaging than that of Land That I Love, which for me was far too static. Director Bethany Crawford seems to have really stepped up her game on this one. Molly Hill's choreography was much better and more current than her previous show at the Barnes. On the vocal performance side of things, the cast was generally on tune. There were, however, some exceptions, and unfortunately, those exceptions made a big difference. What I thought was going to become my favorite performance of the night, Caleb Shaw's agony in his role as the wolf, quickly went downhill as fast as he was climbing uphill on the race set. About three-quarters of the way through the song, what promised to be a great song really took a foul turn as he tried to belt out a high note and instead belted himself way off the scale and way off tune. I was really disappointed because I was really liking both the song and his performance, but he went so far off key for just long enough to break the spell for me. And while his general performance as the Wolf was engaging, his dual role as the Prince left me wanting. The problem was he really wasn't as committed to his dudley Right persona as the Prince as he had been to the Wolf, and so ended up giving us more of a lame duck performance. Equally as disturbing was Finnegan Elliott's Jack. It was just so flat and unresponsive I thought he was the one that was going to keel over Dad instead of his mother. I don't think I've ever seen anyone who was so expressionless on stage. And I really liked Finnegan's performance in Land That I Love. It just goes back to the fact that I think the cast is really worn out and they barely are into the run. I couldn't help but get the impression that the majority of the 33 or so persons in the audience were family and friends of the cast. And while, like my last experience at the Round Barn, several people commented on the way out of the theater that they really enjoyed the show, equally as noteworthy was the fact that after the intermission, the house had dwindled to around 28, about 15% less than than when the show began. And whether that speaks to others like me who really don't care for the show itself or the quality, I don't know. But I don't really recall seeing that reaction when it was produced last summer at Wagonwheel Theater in Warsaw. Granted, Sondheim's music does one thing while the soloists and ensemble do quite another. It's not easy to sing. But that's why we have a vocal coach. And generally, I think Paul Thompson did a good job of coaching his vocal talent. But there were those exceptions that I mentioned. And there were just far too many vocal pas even on opening night. They were the small things that broke the cow's back, and generally I like that cow, but I guess you had to see the performance in order to get the reference. Anyway, seriously, the strength of the show is written is in its music, so when you fall that far off key, and what I would consider the strongest parts of the show, it just taints the entire experience, and even when the soloists were on tune, there was just not enough intensity of performance that is required for the show to go from good to memorable. Equally disappointing was Rachel Peters' vocal performance as the witch. She too had repeated pitch problems, and once she turned from ugly into beautiful witch, she had these flailing arm movements like out of a 1920s film and not nearly as committed. They might have worked for Miss America in the 1960s, but they just didn't sell from Roe E in 2020. At first, I just thought it was her prosthetics that were causing the vocal issues, but once she ditched those, the problems continued and actually became more severe. Another issue that distracted me during the performance was that one of the actors was wearing a face mask, and I assume that was the actor's personal choice since none of the other players were wearing one. And while I've seen other productions where they used face masks, it just stuck out of place with only one person using it, and I personally felt that it was unnecessary and overly distracting. I will say in general that Jack Finnegan Elliott's vocals were on spot. I just wish the rest of his performance was. I really wanted to like the guy. But for me, the night went to Jacqueline Kelly Shaw, whose interlude with the Prince was pretty hysterical, and And a reprise of No One Is Alone, by far the best song of the show, was heart-wrenching. The ensemble performed well together, particularly from a vocal performance perspective. However, they still lacked that extra bit of interactiveness with each other that makes for a connected and emotionally driven audience experience but generally this show was so far superior to Round Barn's first that that in itself was a stunning achievement. And I have to give kudos to the Stutzmans and their team for that. In fact, one of the highlights for me of the evening, and what I originally thought was probably going to be pretty sappy, was a pre-performance video where the Stutzmans talked about the show and their vision for it. I actually found that quite helpful for me in better relating to the show itself and to the Stutzmans' general vision of what the Round Barn is all about. But I still wish someone would iron that scrum. I also appreciated the director's program note, which further added to my experience, and even though I didn't read it until I was preparing this podcast, I really liked what she had to say. The other big highlight for me of the evening was actually after curtain when the cast initiated a new tradition. Since, traditionally, in many theaters, the cast usually comes out for a meet-and-greet after the show. And since the COVID protocols have been put into place, that has prevented that. So, the cast sang an Irish blessing upon the audience at parting. And having an Irish heritage myself, and having spent the last couple of years attending the Irish Festival at Dublin, Ohio, which was canceled this year, unfortunately, due to the outbreak, I found this song particularly meaningful, and the vocals and harmonies were actually glorious. I mean, they were spotless. On It was just beautiful and honestly made up for quite a lot. Tim Parson's sound production and quality had various issues and was generally in need of some upwards tweaking. Director Crawford's lighting design worked well and Colleen Oler's costume designs were on point. Director Crawford did an admirable job as mentioned previously, but a little bit more emphasis on character connection could have really upped the game and I was still really missing the feel of a live orchestra, which, as I've said in previous episodes, I believe is essential to a professional musical theater production. I believe many of the vocal issues could have been solved by the cast's interaction with a live band. Perhaps the biggest factor, however, in preventing a leap from good to great was performance pacing, and this directly translates into the competitive edge that just makes or breaks a show. I sincerely hope that the Barnes audience can hang in there long enough for the Stutzmans and their team to hit that sweet spot of production that will bring a new level of quality to the Round Barn, one that's been missing for far too many years. This theater has, and once again can, be a real asset to Napanee and the whole Northern Indiana theater community, but it will take some intensive focused effort with a dedicated commitment to a higher level of production in order to pull that off. Into the Woods runs at the Round Barn Theater at the Barns of Napanee through October 17, 2020. Tickets for both the performance and pre-performance meal are available at the box office and online. Porchlight Theater of Chicago presented a really great virtual offering this past weekend with its Porchlight Palooza featuring Joel Gray. I believe it's still available on their YouTube channel. It was three nights of great musical performances by many of their most popular performers singing songs from musicals of years past. It also included a great interview with Joel Gray as they presented him the Icon Award. Check out Porchlight's YouTube site to view the recording of the event. Honeywell Center in Wabash, Indiana, as well as their 1330 Drive-In, continue to offer great virtual and live entertainment. The Ryman.com in Nashville, Tennessee is hosting a number of live virtual concerts in September and beyond, including including two of my favorites, Scotty McCreary and Joe Bonamassa. If you have specific questions about area entertainment, or you're a venue owner and would like me to review one of your shows, please contact me, Michael L. Harris, by email at sastunmedia at gmail.com. That's s-a-s-t-u-n-media at gmail.com. To help offset the cost of production, we gladly accept tips and donations. Just go to sastunmedia.com, that's s-a-s-t-u-n-m-e-d-i-a.com. Click on the podcast tab and follow the Help Support This Program button to contribute. Michael L. Harris is a proud member of SAG-AFTRA, and this podcast is produced under a SAG-AFTRA collective bargaining agreement. Original music for the show was written and produced by Mark McPeak. The opinions expressed herein are just that. They're opinions, and they're the observations of Michael L. Harris at the time of production. They are not definitive, and they are not intended to offend or demean any person, production, or venue mentioned herein and they are subject to change. This program is the property of Sastoon Media and MLH Media LLC. It is copyrighted 2020, and all rights are reserved.